This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. The Prime Minister's decision to scrap some of her regular weekly media interviews sparked a bit of a backlash back in April and claims that she was running from tough questions. And since then, she's also found time to chat to overseas media. She's also become an eloquent and respected global voice on issues from climate change to human rights. I spoke with her yesterday from Auckland before an audience of the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics. So just where is Jacinda Ardern spending her media time these days after that well-publicised rejig of his schedule? Hayden Donnell runs the numbers on that shortly. And later, he also looks at what a government agency got for $25,000 a month from a major media company, which neglected to let its readers know that those stories were bought and paid for. But first, how a hui to help heal the wounds inflicted in Christchurch two years ago put our media under the spotlight and also created some fresh conflict that ended up in the headlines. Kia ora, good evening. Now, security agencies foiled two potential mass shootings around the time of the Christchurch terrorist attack. This was highlighted today at a government hui looking at ways to improve the country's counter-terrorism efforts. That was Simon Dallow introducing TVNZ One News last Tuesday and kicking it off with that revelation of previously unreported potential mass shootings in Christchurch back in 2019, which thankfully never happened. All this emerged from a hui called Hefenua Torekura, which was recommended by the Royal Commission of Inquiry into the terrorist attack. Hefenua Torekura means a country at peace, but that hui created some rancour of its own, as we'll hear in a minute. And it also addressed the roles and responsibilities of our news media, which we'll also hear about shortly as well. It was during a panel discussion at the Hui last Tuesday that Police National Security Advisor Cameron Bailey revealed that the public had played a key role in shutting down those two potential attacks back in 2019. Security Intelligence Minister Andrew Little said later that information from the public remained their best tool to prevent attacks in the future too, but Susie Ferguson didn't sound convinced by that on RNZ's morning report. These were both foiled by the public and not by security forces, which does somewhat beg the question, what are the spies doing? Um, I think that's a silly proposition to make. Actually, you don't foil anything without uh, the state security apparatus. But by the time that interview had aired at 8.30 on Tuesday morning, it was something else that was said on stage at the Hefenua Torekura Hui the day before, which had pushed those foiled attacks from 2019 down the bulletins. A Jewish Council spokesperson has been accused of a calculated attempt to denigrate Muslims at a counter-terrorism hui in Christchurch yesterday. At least a dozen participants left a panel discussion in response to comments made on the Israel-Palestine conflict by Juliet Moses. Now, oddly, that story emerged in RNZ's news only at 3am on Wednesday, more than half a day after the actual comments from the spokesperson for the New Zealand Jewish Council. But that, and the reactions to it, led RNZ's bulletins all morning from then on, though the previous evening it led One News as well. Tonight on One News, anger from members of the Christchurch Muslim community who have stormed out of a high-powered hui on terrorism. What they're upset about, plus details of foiled attacks. The hammer's in full swing. As now, as it happened, TVNZ News Christchurch reporter Thomas Mead and his camera operator witnessed the walkout and captured the strength of feeling. The imam of Al Nur Mosque. Yeah, this is racism against us. Walking out in protest. Members of his community attending a counter-terrorism conference left hurt. We would only go in if she's out. And furious. Just close it down. It's a bloody dog fest. I know. So what we would. 
And the anger that aroused was amplified by the fact that no victims or witnesses of the March 15 mosque atrocities were among the speakers alongside Juliet Moses. I think uh, Christchurch uh, Muslims are ignored in this uh, uh, conference. Nobody's talking from uh, our community or the local community. And hard on the heels of the startling news that a Hollywood studio wants to tell the Christchurch Mosque massacre story to the world without much advanced consultation with victims or Muslim leaders in the city, this was probably a problem waiting to happen. However, it didn't derail Hefenua Torikura's second day on Wednesday when the Islamic Women's Council of New Zealand leader Anjum Rahman gave an eye-opening talk on online extremism. She's also an advisor to the Christchurch Call and the Global Internet Forum for Countering Terrorism. Anjum Rahman showed how social media's hyperactive algorithms still spread the sorts of stuff that extremists latch onto. The, the news feed, the searches, and also ads. Um, and so what a lot of people in civil society have been asking for is audits of these algorithms. And there is not audit of the code, but audit of the outcomes of these algorithms. Because again, there's a lot of research to show that algorithms are causing radicalisation. And coincidentally, Ajum Rahman's call to staunch the spread of harmful or illegal content online was echoed last week by the Minister of Internal Affairs, Jan Tanetti, who announced a big review of how we regulate all media, whether on a website, on Facebook, on demand, printed in a newspaper or aired on TV or radio. The goal is to better protect us all from harm, said the Minister, but that can be a fine judgment, and refreshing media regulation will be full of fish hooks and fights over freedom of expression. We'll also take a good look at that here on Media Watch soon. But having highlighted how extremism still proliferates on social media, and quite profitably sometimes, leaders from our mainstream media also face questions at the He Whenua Torikura Hui last Tuesday. Stuff's Sinead Boucher, for example, admitted to the gathering that news media coverage of ethnic issues and communities is often still only surface deep and through a European lens. But she insisted that our news media have a social conscience that social media don't. And I can think of a handful of examples in the last few years where media have had to not publish information um, because of the risk that that could bring to someone's safety. Also on the panel was Mariana Alexander, the head of premium content at the New Zealand Herald, who's also the current chair of the Media Freedom Committee, which represents the mutual interests of our news media. And she told the Hui this. But not always would, would everyone in this room even agree, for example, what that definition of public interest is. And, and so we are often being asked to not report something because, uh, because a certain group doesn't believe it's in the public interest. But, but we are fiercely protective of that right, but we also acknowledge that with those rights does carry responsibilities. And a case in point was the reporting of Brenton Tarrant's crimes back in 2019. Stuff didn't publish his name for quite a while and only minimal details of his background and apparent beliefs. But the Herald published a lot more about him back in March 2019. However, all mainstream news media agreed on protocols for reporting his trial and stuck to guidelines designed to ensure that he couldn't grandstand or promote his beliefs via the media. Mariana Alexander told the Hefenua Torikura Hui that was simply the right thing to do. I've never seen that happen before in my time in media, and I think it is um, a great credit to all of the organisations involved. We don't often operate together in such a way, but I think it was a very powerful thing to do, and I think it really laid a strong foundation for the ongoing um, coverage and relationships associated um, with the trial. 
RNZ's head of news, Richard Sutherland, then told the event that individual news organisations would have followed the same principles anyway without any kind of binding pact in place. But at the time, some free speech and media freedom advocates were alarmed, as they were when the ISPs clubbed together to take down websites hosting any of Brenton Tarrant's online manifesto material. Miriana Alexander also said the media had been meeting twice a year with the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, which incidentally organised this week's hui with an eye to the future. There's some protocols have been drafted and we're continuing to work together to work through those. But I think, again, I'm not aware of that happening in any other jurisdictions. Again, an illustration of the media's desire to be a responsible member of our community. So that's really encouraging. And, and, and I think that that will just allow ongoing relationships to continue to develop and trust to happen. And, and I think in future, there'll just be various ongoing commitments to those kinds of arrangements as appropriate, which I think is really important. Providing a Muslim community perspective on this panel was Kairia Rahman, a senior lecturer at the School of Communication Studies at the Auckland University of Technology. She's analysed representations of Islam and Muslims in New Zealand media back in 2017 for a special study. And in March 2019, she told Media Watch she'd found it lacking in several ways. For example, 13,000 of just over 14,000 stories in the New Zealand media, which included the word Islam, also mentioned either terrorism or Islamic jihad. And most of those stories were from overseas sources. Her paper concluded there appears to be a growing misconceived hatred for a faith supported by 1.5 billion people in the world's population. This destructive trend is promoted by the media, consciously or not. And last Tuesday in Christchurch, she gave this example. Jihadi brides, there was no follow-up. Uh, it's fake news, really. Uh, you know, and you can... We know that for a fact, so that's one. Now, the other one is... if. You know, visuals, when you look at visuals used that accompany some of the articles um, here in New Zealand, and this was before the Christchurch attacks happened, um, picture of a man in a white robe with a turban in a neighbourhood street with a child next to him in a bicycle, and it looks like it could be your Muslim neighbour, and it says firebrand preacher or a man of peace in caps and bold so you, you can't help but wonder, what was the purpose of that? But Kairia Rahman also told the Hefenua Torekora Hui that New Zealand media now lead the world in their efforts to report responsibly after March the 15th, 2019. And she left the Hui with this message. Listen and respond. Do not write narratives about us without us. Do not talk over us nor for us. After the Hefenua Torekura Hui wrapped up last Wednesday, I asked Kairaya Rahman, had that media session been worthwhile in her mind, and should it be a feature of what's expected to now be an annual event? Well, I think it was necessary to have the media panel there. Um, I know there was some talk about I was the only representative of a non-dominant culture. I know that there was some talk about that. But I do feel rather strongly that the media needed to have a presence there so that they can not just explain themselves, because my research had to do with how the New Zealand media treated Muslims before the Christchurch um, attacks took place, and it was largely negative. Uh, but if you notice, in the Royal Commission's report, there was no mention of the media being responsible. So it was rather interesting that the media was present at the hui. 
I myself made a submission to the Royal Commission's inquiry, pointing out that the media was, to a large extent, responsible for perpetuating negative stereotypes um, and ideas, you know, and largely from international news media, you know, so sometimes you run a story because it's out there in international media. And this sort of thing was happening for quite a while. I think that's a start to have this sort of admission, you know, that we're aware there's this sort of bias. Uh, you referred to your own research uh, that when we talked about it on this program back in 2019, finding you know 13,000 out of uh, just over 14,000 stories in New Zealand media that referred to Islam also referred to terrorism or to Islamic Jihad. And you know, at the point was made, uh, I think, by the Herald's Mariana Alexander, look, a lot of these stories will be sourced from overseas, but from you know, reputable bona fide media companies, you know, their, their media partners like Washington Post or um, UK news outlets or news agencies. A lot of time, of course, they're covering news. So it will be uh, about, you know, violent episodes or, or things that have been making headlines internationally. So in that sense, if the media is taking things from what are regarded as reputable sources here and running them for interested readers of world affairs, they're only reflecting what international news diets all over the world are, are presenting to readers. And that's a very interesting take, Colin, because as, as we well know, military propaganda also are told by these reputable news organizations. And uh, this idea of using Islamic terms like jihad and jihadi, and you know, there was this story that ran on jihadi brides, uh, and that's not from Western media, that's from New Zealand media, which was completely untrue. I think New Zealand media has a responsibility because they're breaking away from the uh, traditional pick up any stories and run with it. Uh, and, and this is what we need for a socially inclusive and uh, to build social cohesion and, and to have a more harmonious society. You need to listen to the voices of people in your community because those stories do not represent the people who live in New Zealand. So I think that's a rather important point to take note of. At the event, you gave a couple of examples. You referred to the reporting of the so-called jihadi brides issue. You know, it turned out that things that John Key said as Prime Minister referring to this were not accurate and involved people who were actually uh, living and travelling from Australia and so on. So I can understand um, that there would be anger over stories like this. Um, however, you also referred to another um, story when you talked about the danger of, of visuals being used in a, a story they had a photograph uh, and, and a caption, you know, firebrand or man of peace. And we heard you speaking about that. However, you know, the story, when I looked at it, it's by two very senior journalists, investigative reporters in New Zealand. It's not a random image, is it? It's, um, it's Sheikh Abu Abdullah, uh, also known as Abu Hamam, um, who was living and working in Auckland. And he'd been a very controversial figure. So in that sense, they were trying to report on an issue of public interest. And, uh, you know, the image was just him in the suburban neighbourhood where he lived. Yeah, but having that particular caption, he was not interviewed, was he? There was nothing from him, uh, you know, a story about him, but there was nothing from him. Um, and how how is that fair? Firebrand preacher of men of peace, because you've got, uh, I think there was uh, some quotes by sort of different people, but, there, but he was not represented. He himself didn't say a word. Uh, so... How is that balance reporting? Yes, they spoke to some of his followers, uh, indeed, about him. Uh, he, I guess he didn't uh, wish to speak, but, uh, you know, he was willing to be photographed. It's, it's difficult because, in a sense, you know, here are 
the journalist reporting on a controversial figure. I understand that caption is could be irritating, firebrand or man of peace, you know, as if to say, look, are people who look like this man in the photograph, must they be one Indeed. or the other, you know? Yeah. But, you know, they're doing their best to get to a difficult story about someone who does live here in Auckland. They talk to a, a range of people in the story. So there's some contextual matter in the story of the sort that you said was often lacking. I don't think it's that hard, really. Because if you understand the people that you're reporting on and the marginalised position that they come from, it's not that difficult. You know, if you look at Firebrand or Men of Peace, it's in caps. Is there a reason for it to be in caps, you know? But in a way, it feels like just selecting one element of the story. There are people from Auckland's Islamic communities referred to, interviewed. It seems to me like this is one where the reporters have really gone the extra mile to talk to people in those communities compared to these stories that you cited, which are often just picked up and run from overseas. Can I just say I disagree? Because if you were to run that story past the Muslim community, there'll be some things they'll point out to you, you know, uh, where somebody talks about jihad and jihad doesn't always mean such and such. And But you find that the voices are diminished because right at the end there was this lists of people that gone through Australia and joined ISIS and alleged there was, you know, his family alleged that he was like brainwashed in a Christchurch mosque, something along those lines, I seem to recall. I mean, it ended with that. It didn't end with someone saying that uh, it's just a rival faction thing. The man is terribly misunderstood. It didn't end with that. You know, so if you're looking at a story and you have a, 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 a good introduction, but the finale is quite horrible, you go away feeling a certain sort of way. Um, and that's the whole point about a narrative. You know, you'll go away thinking, horrible, these Muslim people, you know. When you addressed uh, the Hui on Tuesday, uh, you said you spoke of the, the media having this role as a, a cultural intermediary. That may not be uh, automatic to news media who think of themselves as the eyes and ears of the public, trying to work out what the public interest is. What do you mean when you say the media uh, should see themselves and play a role as a, a cultural intermediary? At the end of the day, you know, you get your stories by your sources, right? And your sources come from different Uh, community groups. So by that I mean we are treading some middle ground culturally. But the differences are more pronounced when we engage with someone from a a different country or a different geographical location within the same country even, you know, like the Uyghurs in China, where differences may lie in the socio-cultural religious background. So, I mean, it's clear from my research that the media and the government have a primary role to play in setting the scene for respectful engagement when you're doing your interviews, when you're trying to get feedback from the ground. And the Hefenua Torikura Hui, the expectation now is that it will become, uh, if not an annual, at least a, a regular event. So do you think that the next time and the next time there should be a similar opportunity for people to hear from editorial leaders in New Zealand media organisations uh, and, and question them in the way that it was done uh, last Tuesday and Wednesday? Or do you think uh, if, if it should be part of the programme, it should be done differently? I think there should be follow-ups on recommendations by all of the panels, including my panel, ideally next year, uh, we'd like the media to then follow up on some of the recommendations that would be ideal. Uh, Can I just say I was also contacted by uh, Facebook for our region. It would be interesting to find out what what they have planned. Uh, Social media 
uh, news. They they were present, the social media platforms, they were present, but they were talking more about terrorism and hate rhetoric and how they were handling that, shutting down and checking on that sort of talk on social media. Um, yeah, so definitely. So that's, that's a, a kind of a separate panel. Um, but look, it, it's not about it's not about blame, you know. It's about what what can we do going forward. How can we show to the affected community that we hear you, and anything that we report, it's it's not about silo mentality or telling a story only one way because that's not what the media is about anyway. You know, it's about fair representation. It's about being accurate. So if you do have someone a particular faith uh, and attributed the terror act to the faith, that's something that you can report on in terms of a faith-based terror act. But that does not represent the, you know, entire community who practice that particular faith. That was Kairaya Rahman, her senior lecturer at the School of Communication Studies at the Auckland University of Technology. Recently, stuff political journalist Andrea Vance hit out at the current government has thin-skinned, obstructive when it comes to releasing information, and ministers increasingly reliant on increasing numbers of communications professionals and press officers. Now, not everyone agreed with what she wrote, but she wasn't the first in the media to use their own outlets to criticise Jacinda Ardern's government for this, as Hayden Donnell now reports. When Jacinda Ardern changed her media schedule this year, Mike Hosking announced the move in typically understated fashion. Hosking. So 7.23. Now, the Prime Minister has not been on the programme this morning, and there is a reason for that. She is running for the hills. The News Talk ZB breakfast host was peeved mainly because the changes meant Ardern would no longer be appearing weekly on his show, opting for ad hoc bookings instead. He had a theory on why Ardern made that move. The simple truth is this. As I said yesterday, she's running for the hills because she's scared. She hates a hard question. She hates fact. She hates accountability. She hates not being fawned over. It wasn't just Hosking making that accusation. He got back up from News Talk ZB's political editor, Barry Soper, who penned a venomous op-ed criticising Ardern for failing to pose for derpies with students and not inviting the media up to her office for social calls. On the detail, RNZ's podcast and series editor, Tim Watkin, delivered this challenge. You're Prime Minister, right? You are the most powerful person in the country. If you can't handle, even if you see him as the rudest and and most poorly behaved uh, interviewer in the country, if you can't handle that, then you're in the wrong job. You're the Prime Minister. Suck it up. Deal with it. Toughen up and actually front up. Others argued Ardern could still suck it up and front up without appearing on Hosking's show every week. The Hui's presenter Mihi Ngārangi Forbes said a small collection of outlets with predominantly Pākehā audiences had dominated the Prime Minister's media schedule for too long. She welcomed the chance for a broader range of interviewers to get access. That lined up with Ardern's own rationale. No one has ever been able to do every media outlet. We can't, you know, these last two weeks I did 21 media interviews and even then I wouldn't have touched the sides of all the different media mm. outlets. What I've tried to do is so take a look at where, you know, different audiences, often, you know, the people that might listen to ZB are also consuming news out of the Herald and so on. There are some parts Okay, so who are you, which, which programmes are you going to go there. on instead? that I might reach there, who I might not reach anywhere else. I don't do nearly as much, for instance, ethnic media. I don't do nearly as much media that cross a, a different demographics of New Zealand. And I feel like I need to do a better job of that, and that's what I'll be doing. 
In the months since, Hosking has kept the pressure on the PM over her alleged allergy to scrutiny. He's been running a regular segment on what she's up to in her appearances on music stations. Adun has turned up on a couple of music stations in the last couple of weeks. One of them was a station called The Rock. And, well, you make up your mind. Have you got a Trade Me account? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, I do. do you? Well, what you... Okay. <laughs> when when was the last time you bought something on Trade Me? And do you pick up yeah. from the vendor? <laughs> um, it has been since I've been Prime Minister. Okay. And, yes, uh, we did pick up. My, my memory is that they, it was a chair and they were out and we still... Several of Ardern's recent media bookings have reinforced the theory that she's only interested in softball questions. This is a snippet from a relatively unchallenging podcast interview with David Axelrod, a former senior advisor in the Obama administration. When I look at your agenda in New Zealand, uh, it's really very much about reversing uh, conservative policies that have been in place for decades and kind of strengthening the social safety net, the the. you know, the, the social compact as it relates to, for example, child poverty. But is the Prime Minister truly cutting back on news in favour of light entertainment? The answer is, well, kind of, maybe sometimes, but not really. We checked over Ardern's media diary to see how things have changed in February, March and April this year. Ideally, we would have compared back to the same time period in 2020, but a reasonably significant global event called the COVID-19 pandemic distorted the Prime Minister's media schedule somewhat during those months. Instead, we selected three lockdown and general election-free months, February, July and November, to compare to this year's diary. In those three months in 2020, 24 of 94, or roughly 23%, of Ardern's media appearances were on entertainment-focused networks like music stations. That compared to 21 of 96, or 22%, in February, March and April this year. While bookings on music stations have actually gone down slightly, Ardern has appeared more regularly on stations catering to Māori and Pacific audiences. 13 of her 96 media appearances were on platforms like Māori TV's Te Ao Tapatahi, Radio Wātia and 531PI in 2021, compared to 7 of her 94 appearances in 2020. Her appearances on other ethnic media like Radio Tirana, which is targeted at Indian audiences, were down slightly, with four over three months in 2020 and three over three months in 2021. There was one type of media booking that Ardern did cut back on substantially, though. In the three months we looked at from 2020, she appeared on Mike Hosking Breakfast 12 times. In 2021, she was interviewed on the show just three times in three months half the number of appearances that she racked up in the same time on another News Talk ZB show, The Country. These results are far from scientific. There's every possibility the Prime Minister is ducking some tough questions. But while she may no longer be engaging in weekly verbal warfare with the nation's most popular commercial radio broadcaster, it doesn't appear she's eschewing scrutiny altogether. She's still sucking it up and fronting up, albeit for different audiences with different concerns. Hayden Donnell there, breaking down the Prime Minister's media appearances before and after she angered some broadcasters by scrapping her regular once-a-week interviews with them in April.
As we heard there, the government's been in the gun lately in the media for trying to manage the media. And with that in mind, a headline this week that said they were paying thousands of dollars for secret stories about housing in the news raised eyebrows in politics and the media. Now, the stories, of course, weren't secret. They were published by one of our biggest news media outlets. But they weren't news. They were SponCon. Hayden Donnell explains. This is an RNZ podcast. Last May, an article appeared in the Herald's dedicated property section, One Roof, about Arena Williams' efforts to bring her community together following the first COVID-19 lockdown. Williams was standing to be selected as Labour's Manurewa candidate, but the story was about her efforts to send out care packages to older and isolated people in Hobsonville Point. It was also a piece of sponsored content for the government's housing arm, Kāinga Order. This week, staff reporter Henry Cook revealed that Kāinga Order paid NZME 25000 a month for that story and 63 others like it in one roof. The stories had headlines like, Why Buy in a Kāinga Order-led development? All things property under one roof. They went up without disclaimers saying they were paid for content. Stuff's story exposing the deal was prompted by a written question from National's housing spokesperson Nicola Willis to Housing Minister Megan Woods. After Cook sent questions to NZME about the stories, the company added disclaimers to them and said it was reviewing its processes for SponCon. Sponsored or native content is essentially ad copy written to resemble news stories. It's opened up new revenue streams for a struggling media industry, but also blurred the once fiercely guarded line between advertising and editorial content. To illustrate the confusion that can generate, some people pointed out that the video above Cook's article on undeclared SponCon for Kanga Order itself looked a lot like undeclared SponCon for Kanga Order. It depicted a walkthrough of a new house built by the organisation, accompanied by text pointing out the home's mod cons and an uplifting soundtrack. Stuff's editor-in-chief Patrick Crudson assured MediaWatch that wasn't the case, though. The video was done by News. He linked to the organisation's guidelines on sponsored content, which include that it always be clearly labelled and not come with the expectation of influence over editorial content. Those kinds of rules are important for organisations dealing heavily in SponCon. As this week showed, if they're not clearly established in the minds of all staff, things can get pretty muddy pretty quickly. Hayden Donnell there on what government agency Kainga Ora has been getting from a major news media company for $25,000 a month of public money, unbeknown to the public reading the stories until now. Last Wednesday on Midweek Media Watch, our weekly catch-up with The Lately Show here on RNZ National, I talked to Karen Hay about the new TV news channel launched in the UK this week, promising to go to war on wokeness. It's called GB News, though critics call it Fox News for the UK and even Gammon TV. Founder Andrew Neil said it would air the voices of Britons ignored by the elitist mainstream news channels over recent years, though on day one it was mainly just the hosts talking to each other. They join me now from our sofa area. We have so many areas to go to, go to here. Let's go to, to this one here. Uh, Colin, just seeing you in the run-up to the launch of our channel, I kind of got the feeling you're champing at the bit to get going. <laughs> I am. Andrew, I am. Also on Midweek Media Watch this week, I looked at how the near-death experience of Danish footballer Christian Eriksen was handled by TV broadcasters with millions of people watching and how some individual broadcasters found they couldn't handle even watching it themselves. I, I actually switched the television off, Max, after, after about five minutes of this because I couldn't take it. 
I felt a bit guilty by association. That's Midweek Media Watch, available for you on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website, the RNZ app, or on our podcast feed, available wherever you get your podcasts. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but we'll be back again with Midweek Media Watch at about 10.30 next Wednesday night, talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show, and then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend, here on RNZ National.